Hello, and welcome to the Dead Man Walking Podcast. I'm your host, Repeatedly Dead Fred, author of the soon-to-be-released memoir, The Summer I Died 20 Times, which is what actually happened to me, which is how I got the name Repeatedly Dead Fred. Kind of makes sense, right? Today, we are doing one of my small business and financial literacy um, segments, and I'm thrilled to have Rick Wolf with with me today or with us today. I met Rick about 15 years ago, maybe through Marty Avery, who brought a bunch of people to do a uh, strategy and thinking session together. I don't know how I got involved or <laughs> invited into this group of luminaries, but I'm glad I did. And uh, I saw Rick was posting a lot on LinkedIn. You, you're a fairly prolific poster or reposter. And uh, I thought he's a good guy to have to uh, talk to small business and uh, talk about change management, which is forefront with everybody restructuring and reorganizing these days because of the pandemic, or maybe because of the natural business cycle. So Rick, thank you for coming on. I look forward to uh, hearing some of your insights. Thanks very much for inviting me, Fred. Very, very welcome. So. As we were just talking off air, you actually come from an arts background, uh, which surprised me. So do you want to talk a little bit about how you transitioned from a fine arts person to uh, into the business world? Sure. My, my university education, an undergraduate and graduate, was in, was in theater and in, in faculty of fine arts, at, first at, at York University here in Toronto. Uh, and then for my master's out at the University of Alberta in, in Edmonton for a directing program. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I did it because uh, I, I loved the theater. I still love the theater. Mm -hmm. I, I, I go to the theater often. I read plays. I read about plays. Um, and and like lots and lots of people in the theater, uh, at, at one point or another, you have to make a decision. And uh, uh, because it, it, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful uh, enriching Way to live. And unfortunately, for almost everybody in the theater, it comes with only a few nickels and dimes. Mm -hmm. And uh, as much as I, I loved the work, I, I spent most of my time cobbling together opportunities and decided uh, it made more sense to, to move into a world where you got to, to uh, enjoy the profession and learn the profession every single day, as opposed to when you were able to cobble stuff together. Mm -hmm. uh, with, no, with no great vision of what to do outside the theater, I started asking friends uh, for their advice, and uh, for whatever reason, maybe I knew people who were in or near advertising, or maybe, maybe uh, there's something they saw in in who I am. I, honestly, maybe it was the state of the economy at the time, because uh, this was uh, in the early 1980s, mid early to mid 1980s, and it was a great period for advertising. You can never go wrong moving into a growing field. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, I found myself having having been a director who who has um, stronger or or more authoritative opinions opinions in a rehearsal hall than anybody else. Mm -hmm. I went to being a, an assistant uh, account executive in an advertising agency, a person who has no opinions, mm -hmm. and, and that that's, that's good for the soul to to find yourself uh, as as a as a novice with a vast amount to, to learn. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, it was a very interesting challenge to go from one world to the other, but uh, it worked. 
and, uh, and gradually uh, I, I learned a few things, accomplished a few things, and, and here I am. So who was the first agency you connected with? And the are first, they still around? Yeah, the first and only agency I connected with was McCann Erickson, uh, one of the global giants. And yes, <laughs> it's a good question, are they still around? Because lots of agency names come and go. In fact, the McCann Erickson uh, name went up and down in Canada. It went from being the biggest in Canada at one point to uh, having a terrible time uh, during the financial crisis, excuse me, the uh, the, the Canadian financial crisis of the early 1990s. Uh, mm -hmm. The parent company merged McCann with uh, one of its other shops to reinvigorate the name. So yeah, the, the McCann Erickson is absolutely uh, still here. But yeah, because I've known uh, when I back, went back after I got sick and started taking a bunch of courses through the Canadian Marketing Association, and a number of our instructors were from various agencies, and it sure. seemed they were, you know, every two years they were being bought and reorganized oh, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Just a time. Well, I'm, I, there are rather great agencies, both large and small. Mm -hmm. McCann was a great fit for me, ultimately, in that uh, it has a stronger global network than pretty much any other, or did in that era, it was a while ago. Uh, and I was working on a, a couple of global assignments. One of those assignments, uh, after I'd been at McCann Toronto for close to four years, uh, one of those assignments, American Express, uh, and, and in, an issue popped up in Tokyo. Ad, ad agencies are very fast-moving businesses. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't do a, a lot of process in making decisions about who goes where. There was a problem in Tokyo. There was a guy in Toronto who knew the business and had the right level of experience. Uh, I, a few months later, I found myself in Tokyo for a four-year stint. Oh, wow. That must have been fascinating. It, it, every minute fascinating, every minute hard. I wouldn't change a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, probably the average person doesn't think about agencies too much, but you know, even if there's a global account, some companies decide to, some parts of its company are globally managed and some sure. are regional. And I think Coke and McDonald's did a lot of that. And then they go back to the other model and flip back and forth. And and, and I worked on the Coke account. And so that gave me early exposure to a, a globally coordinated account. And that was that was a, a critical part of the job in Tokyo. I, I, the second assignment I, I picked up in Tokyo we had regionally, we, we, we handled much of Asia, Asia for an airline called Northwest Airlines. Long The way ad agencies merge, airlines also merge. Uh, the Northwest mm -hmm. name is no longer. Um, um, and uh, uh, we coordinated, from out of Tokyo, we, we coordinated with ad agencies all around Asia on the, on the campaign for Northwest. And my job was to be the coordinator. Uh, mm -hmm. Half those agencies were owned by McCann. Half of those agencies weren't owned by McCann. I've had a client, a great, a great guy who's still a good friend. Guy, a client said, "Hey, figure it out." Uh, he, he sent a letter to everybody. Uh, McCann Erickson in Tokyo uh, is coordinating. Meet Rick Wolf. He's the coordinator. Um, I look forward to seeing good work from you. And people were incredibly cooperative, and it was, it was, it was almost startling how easy it was and how uh, uh, fruitful it was to be collaborating with ad agencies all over Asia, but people, independent agencies, global agencies, everyone spoke the same advertising language and brand language, and everybody was great at collaborating across boundaries. Yeah, but wasn't that... If only, if only real life were like that. Yeah, wasn't that a great boss to have? 
I'm not telling you how to do your job. I just want you to do your job. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm confident. I'm confident in you that you will do your job. And of course, the unspoken issue is I don't want to hear you're not doing your job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't want to micromanage you, and you probably don't want to be micromanaged. So he, he wasn't. An, he was not an ad guy. He, mm -hmm. he was a, a veteran uh, airline executive. Ah, okay. So you can't tell pilots how to fly their planes. Right. Oh, that's right. So, that's right. Okay. So how did you end up going from the advertising world to being the uh, renowned change consultant that you are now? Well, well, it's kind of you to to say that. I hope it's uh, almost true. Mm -hmm. um, so I, my my agreement to to go to Japan was a four year agreement, and that mm -hmm. and that was uh, that was right for me. They were they were very kind and urged me to stay. And when I said no, it's time to go, they said, well, what about somewhere else in Asia? And I said, no thanks, um, time to go home. What about somewhere in Europe? Uh, no thanks, time to go home. Um, and it was time to go home uh, for, for a lot of reasons. Um, I, I miss Asia. With, I, I wish we had the, the virtual tools today uh, then that we have today, because then I could have uh, continued to stay connected to Asia one way or another in my work. Mm -hmm. but, but it wasn't even anything to, to give a moment's thought to in, in those days. Uh, the fax machine was, and, and expensive phone calls were no way to coordinate across uh, uh, the globe. Mm -hmm. So, so I came back to Toronto. I was coming back, back to Toronto in a deep recession, um, and uh, um, uh, uh, I, I honestly I didn't give a moment's thought to rejoining the ad agency in Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I was ha having been a, a, a independent when I worked in the theater. I was very content to return to the life of an independent. That was mm -hmm. 1991. I've worked independently ever since. That's amazing. So. Your entrepreneurial spirit, I, I've found that from a lot of people I've met through the theater. Uh, they just have, whether they've gone, you know, to the more um, YouTube star kind of thing and yeah. have created their own brand and uh, just, you know, all these um, brand associations and, and they're just making killer money, but they're still trying to go back to the theater at some point. Um <laughs> One of yeah. the women I know, she just created a, a pilot using her own money that she's made from her YouTube because um, she right. wants to go back into the theater. Yeah. And um, it, it is it, the theater is a very satisfying place to, to to work, to to connect with other people, to express yourself, to 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 create art. It's tremendously satisfying. Um, mm -hmm. One performer who I know who who is well into her nineties. Uh, and began performing in her early twenties. She she was a, she's Canadian, but she was a, a cabaret star in London in the nineteen fifties. Mm -hmm. And at, and the last time she did a professional show on stage, it was a, she was in a musical at the age of eighty nine. Wow! Uh, and the way she puts it is, uh, acting is not, not a profession; it's a disease. Yeah, I can't sing at thirty, forty, or fifty. So singing at that age <laughs> is pretty impressive. I, yeah. I got to know none of the artistic flow down gene from uh, my grandparents who uh, both performed back in the vaudeville area where professional wow. musicians. Oh, how exciting. I'm sorry. How exciting. Yeah. I, 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 what what stories they must have had. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, my grandfather, not to take away from your story, but he was 
I believe one of the founders of the Winnipeg Musicians Union, and Amazing. he was the conductor. He was a um, trained violinist in former Soviet Union. So wow. uh, he was the conductor of the vaudeville orchestras that played when, you know, the George Burns and Jack Benny's and all those people came through town. And my mom tells me after performances, they'd all come back to their house. Uh, that's not so your grandmother would feed them and they'd have jam sessions or whatever. And, amazing. Oh, to have those videos would be <laughs> so amazing. But me, uh, no talent whatsoever. <laughs> you, that, you're you're an, an impresario here and now. Thank you. Um, I believe it's uh, is Judd Apatow, director. Judd um, Apatow, director, yes. He was he was telling uh, an actor that was having trouble finding roles. He says, "So write your own role. Mm. You know, just create something yeah. for yourself, and yeah. uh, you know, chances are it'll come to fruition." Nice, beautiful. But back to you and getting into change management. Um, so, what what happened that you became that type of consultant? I, I I was and and by the way this 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 has relevance far beyond me it has tremendous relevance to entrepreneurs and and small business people and others I was pulled into change management mm -hmm. uh, I I had worked on financial services advertising business um, and had done some a bit of financial services consulting at a point in time when. Uh, the major banks realized that they needed to um, really think of the customer on a, a, a everywhere in the business, that, that anyone who touched the customer, be that directly on the phone, writing a, 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 an ad, writing a, a page of a website, mm -hmm. uh, de designing the, the software for, a, for a t an ATM machine and, and, other, and, and, and the emerging web. Uh, this was back when the web was just emerging as a banking tool. Uh, they, they realized that, that they needed to be thinking of the customer at every step as they designed those things. Uh, and uh, with a couple of colleagues, we, had, we received the opportunity to work with one of the big banks. And a few years later, uh, one of the members of the team moved over to another bank and we were asked to come over uh, there. With, um, and, nice. and the two banks knew we were, were working with each other. We, we, we never discussed it, and we certainly didn't talk about what we learned at the other bank. But 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 it, we were in a position where we did understand uh, financial services, we did understand brand, and we did understand how customers interact with brand, and we were able to design programs that helped um, thousands and thousands of employees across these banks um, develop for themselves a, a better understanding and better better procedures. Uh, better outlooks uh, to, to help them uh, deliver not just a great customer experience, but a branded customer experience. And I like to use the example of Starbucks because they do such a great job of this around the world. When, when I travel, I make a point of going to Starbucks to see how uh, faithful they are to the brand around the world. And, and, my, and I haven't been everywhere by a long, long shot. But when I've walked into a Starbucks, instantly, I've always known I was in a Starbucks. I have never once felt like uh, this isn't a Starbucks, but but actually let's let's actually drill down there. Though I have never felt I wasn't in a Starbucks here in Toronto, 
I have I remember walking into a Starbucks and and ordering my coffee and it wasn't right. There was there was something that was just off about the experience. Mm-hmm. And and strangely, one of the things you could notice, and, and and let's let's really zero in on this. One of the things you could notice is that the way the barista knocked the coffee grounds out of the uh, the it's, it's kind of a uh, it's a cup with a handle like a, like mm-hmm. a mini uh, the saucepan and and at once and once they have uh, used the uh, coffee to make a, a cup of latte or cappuccino they bang this thing uh, into the, the the garbage bin to get rid of the grounds mm-hmm. and the rhythm the rhythm with which uh, they banged this little uh, container to to get rid of the grounds was different than in any other car- Starbucks I was in. So the service was off mm. and, the, and, the, and, the, and the grounds were being banged out in the wrong way. And so I made a mental note to come back in a few weeks to see if it had changed. And yes, the service was better. And yes, the, and yes, the sound of the coffee being banged out of, into the garbage bin uh, was, was as it was in other Starbucks, which is to say they have monitoring systems that let them know when things are off. And when mm-hmm. they discover that things are off, they send in a supervisor to coach the staff to bring things back onto brand. And, and so that, that's, that's, that's what change is. I didn't start, and, and it illustrates my own life in change. I didn't start as an expert on change. I, I started as somebody who knew a fair bit about what customers are looking for and mm-hmm. how granular it is. How, how it, the, the, think of yourself as a customer. It's no good if... When you walk into the store, you have a good experience, and then when you ask the the, uh, the staff person a question, it's weird. And then when they show you the merchandise or make you a coffee, it's good. And then when you go to pay, it's bad. It's got to be good at every point along the way. It's got to be something that feels right to you. Mm-hmm. And 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 so when that's the way you approach change, it's just common sense. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's let's and, and and what I'm about to say is not original to me. The client had figured this out when when we walked in the door. They they counted on us for brand and consumer insight. They had already figured out that each step along the way has to be the right step for the customer. Mm-hmm. But isn't the important thing when you go to a Starbucks or a Starbucks like entity is they give call your name and they get the name wrong? Isn't that well? Well, um, Fred, that's one of a thousand important things. Mm -hmm. The the task is to get everything right. Yeah, but I I think people go there to find out what new name they can have (laughs) when they (laughs) order coffee. Well, uh, why not? Why not? Mm -hmm. So, if you go back to your theater days when you're directing, did you always have the the person in the audience in mind? when you're trying to construct a play and a performance? Is it sort of the the same thing? Like, how do we make this a magical experience for the people in the audience? Absolutely. And, and also you have to you have to collaborate with the playwright. You have to collaborate with the technical team. You have to collaborate with the designers and the actors and 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 as in any business, small or large, help work with everybody to make sure that we're all on the same page we all have the same vision we all have the same plan and 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 actors are used to working to a plan and they're used to working to a schedule you don't need to ex- explain to an actor that you need to be ready to go at eight o'clock on wednesday night mm-hmm. uh, they, uh, that's the business you you're you taught that literally on day one of theater school yeah. but, uh, but 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 
because you you owe it to the rest of the cast, you owe it to the audience who have come that night. And yes, you do you do listen to the audience. I, I, I can illustrate that by telling the story of a of a production I once saw of Shakespeare's As You Like It. This was not a typical production of As You Like It. It used stuffed animals. They called them tabletop puppets, but they were in fact stuffed animals. All the characters yeah. were a different stuffed animal. Uh, they they sat on a tabletop with two actors standing behind the table, acting out as you like it. And the, and the stage manager was visible too, as he kept changing the stuffed toys who were there mm -hmm. ready for them and a few little props. Of course, uh, and, and it was originally aimed at a school audience, but, but the audience I was in was all adults. I know as you like it very, very well. I have been in it. I, I have seen several productions. Um, I, I have uh, been uh, an, an assistant director on a production of As You Like It. Um, this was the most insightful production of As You Like It I had ever seen. Mm. And I learned that they rehearsed it in front of a grade one class. That's amazing. That that sounds like something you would see at a Fringe Festival. Absolutely. Undoubtedly, it started as a, at a Fringe Festival. And great comics, the greatest comics, before they before they do their show at, at some giant venue, they go to little clubs and they try out the material. Mm -hmm. I, so, I so yes, the, the, the audience the audience the audience has a tremendous amount to contribute to the show. Mm -hmm. I've you know I've been a professor for a number of years, which is basically you're, you're an improv class. That's right. And That's and right. I you know I've done the Toastmasters, I've done the Dale Carnegie, but I don't think anything trains you as well as a bunch of improv classes no matter what industry you're going to be in to be able to I, take what somebody presents you and turn it into something meaningful for them uh, that's about as good as you can get um, I, I, um, other professionals of various kinds lawyers finance people um uh, uh, systems people have have all told me how meaningful uh, improv classes have been for them mm -hmm. and I, I think it should be standard training if you're going to business school you need your toastmasters your dale carnegie and your right. improv it, it just gives you an, an advantage that other people won't have so yeah and 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 that and that takes us back to change if you want to be good at change be good at improv mm -hmm. for sure and that, um, I, i'll just tease something um, one of the bedrock principles of, of improv is whatever happens, never say, never respond to the other person in the scene by saying no. It's always, no matter how much you want to take it in a different direction, you start with yes, yes, and. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's the way to create change. Yes, mm -hmm. and. And that would be very effective in a staff meeting or or a brainstorming mm -hmm. meeting. But now, but now, if I if I can uh, jolt our conversation a bit uh, mm -hmm. as as a, a deeper believer I am in, in yes and for uh, the, the improv performer and for the business performer, there is one situation, an absolutely essential situation where sometimes we want yes and, and sometimes we want I disagree. And, and that is in uh, uh, the probably one of the two oldest tools in our toolkit, which is conversation. Mm -hmm. And I have long been of the view that um, too often we overlook the, the fundamental role that conversation plays in our success. Yes, of course, there are 
There are many, many ways to do an analysis, to 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 uh, debate an issue, to to arrive at an agreement, to uh, to arrive at and execute an action plan, to have insights. Um, and and do, are any of them as important as the water cooler, or the pub, uh, or the restaurant? And a long, long time ago, for reasons lost in in the sands of time, I don't, I'm not even sure I had much of a reason at the time. I, I, I decided to start experimenting uh, by, by turning meetings inside out rather than have a very structured agenda for the meeting. Um, it, it's a, a, meeting, a, a meeting agenda where first we'll discuss this, then we'll discuss this, then we'll discuss this. A meeting where the chair turns to each person in turn to hear from that person. Um, the, the decision I made was, well, what if we flip all of this? And what if we put the structure of the meeting around the outside, kind of like a a, a container for the discussion. Mm -hmm. It's not a it's not a container shaped like a plain box. It's a, a, a container with many uh, twists and turns. Think think of it more like the skeleton, the the, the exoskeleton of a, of a lobster. With uh, but it's but that's all it is. It's the exoskeleton around the conversation that you explore over the time you're in the conversation. The conversation might be ninety minutes. The conversation might be two hours. If it's a strategic planning offsite or a change management workshop, it might be two days, in which you, um, knowing what you're there to discuss, the big question you're there to discuss, the beautiful question you're there to discuss, you spend the time exploring every bit of it. And you, and since you know clearly what the question is, everyone, any, everyone, and anyone can think, well, we haven't talked about this part of the question. We haven't talked about this part of the question. We, that this part of the question we've done. This part of the question we need to explore, mm -hmm. and and it turns out that disagreement is essential to great conversation. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's something in North America in general we have trouble with right now, is is disagreeing with people with other opinions, and um, I think yeah, and, and so 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 uh, let's take that further. Why I, I'm going to I'm going to interview interview you for a second. Why is that? I, I, I agree. Why is that? Well, Joe Rogan has a theory that um, that being in opposition to somebody else's opinion um, totally in disproportion to what it means is the new national hobby. Voila. You know, exactly. Uh, I'm sure he says it much more succinctly than so, I just did. So the so the so the the new golden rule. After the golden rule will do 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 unto other do unto others as we'd have them them do unto us. And and mm -hmm. by the way, every significant world religion has the rule. Um, and and uh, and the rule and what that says is so when you're going to do it when you're going to disagree with somebody, do it with love and respect. Mm -hmm. I, I don't share your view, but I but I but I share this world with you, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to share this world for you. Mm -hmm. uh, something there's a there's a saying that I have been using with clients and, and colleagues for many many years. In COVID times, I have learned that this saying is a bedrock principle of statistics, mm -hmm. and if it's a bedrock principle of statistics, it's a bedrock principle that epidemiologists use. That's how I learned it in COVID time. The principle is a quote from Oliver Cromwell. The, uh, the, the I think his title was Lord Protector of the United Kingdom when he was the mm -hmm. dictator running the United Kingdom in the Puritan era. Uh, Cromwell wrote a letter once, and, and, and I'm going to quote the letter. And this, this phrase 
as he said it in the letter, is used regularly by statisticians and epidemiologists. The phrase goes, I beseech you in the bowels of Christ, consider you may be wrong. That's not intense at all. No, no not at all. I, I read that in the New York Times. I, I had been using it for years. I knew it was Cromwell, but I didn't realize it was a bedrock of good statistics. My brother-in-law is a world-class statistician, so I'm going to have to ask him that tonight. That's right. That's right. It's called Cromwell's Rule or Cromwell's Law or something like that. So in your, in your career, have you found you have maybe like a top two or three changes that you've been able to make in an organization that stand out above the rest or a couple that you thought we've got this, we're going to help these people turn whatever it is they want around and it just didn't go. Well, um, uh, are you, are you aware that engineers wear a steel ring mm -hmm. in the United States? That steel ring comes from a, a bridge in Tacoma, which collapsed. Um, I believe in Canada, it comes from a bridge in Quebec City that collapsed. Yeah, that's and the reason, uh, pinky ring, right? That's right. And the reason engineers wear this steel ring is a constant reminder of their fallibility. So, uh, yes, I've done change work, which years later, and this is, this is things that came back to me from, from colleagues and, and, and friends. Years later, the executive vice president of a large financial services company described work my colleagues and I did, he described it as critical work at a critical time. Or, or once upon a time, many years after doing work in a business, a big business, um, we, we probably directly or indirectly touched at least a thousand employees. I happened to be invited by a, a different colleague to go to a meeting in this business. And uh, these are these are giant companies and people move mm -hmm. around. So the people I worked with were gone. But to introduce myself, uh, just to avoid confusion, I, I said, it's possible that that you, the man we were meeting with, it's possible that you've seen a video in which I appear. The, the video was four minutes long. I, I was on the mm -hmm. screen just momentarily because the video was focusing on the customer. And I mm -hmm. happened to be in conversation with customers. They did 90% of the talking or 95% of the talking but I did appear on screen a couple of times. Uh, and there were a few of these videos. And so I said, it's not impossible you've seen me in a video. He replied, we base our customer service strategy on that video. So sounds good. Sounds like I've had a big impact. And then years later, you touch base with that business again, and it's all gone. Mm -hmm. So you got to wear your steel ring in this business. Yeah, that's sort of the life of a consultant, though. Like, the, you know, they bring you in. And consultant A will find this solution, but then you know another consultant consulting company says we've got to generate some revenue, so we have to find you know solution <laughs> well, B or now Fred, C. Fred, Fred, in the spirit in the spirit of Cromwell, um, I, I hope I, I hope that some of the time consultants are attempting to to respond to the moment and, and helping do something for the client that will last. Uh, getting back to engineering, I, and by the way, I've done a ton of work in the engineering industry with one client, but I've I've worked uh, in depth for many many years with a with a, an engineering consulting firm on strategic planning and change. 
And uh, one of the things I've learned from them is that it's the job of an engineer to future-proof a project. I like that. Here's, here's an example. Uh, here in Toronto, uh, there are deep, deep and wide river valleys. The biggest, the deepest and widest is the Don Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, and a, a, over a century ago, it was proposed that a, a the street on the east side of the valley and the street on the west side of the valley, uh, Bloor Street and Danforth, for, for those people from Toronto, that those streets should be connected with a bridge. And the chief engineer recommended that a subway right-of-way should be built under the bridge. It was staggeringly uh, uh, difficult to get agreement. It was a fierce fight about mm -hmm. whether or not to put this subway right-of-way uh, underneath uh, the, the Bloor Viaduct, the, I think it's the, the Prince Prince Edward Viaduct, the Prince Edward Viaduct was its original name. Um, after a fight at City Council, uh, a knockdown drag out fight at City Council, it was agreed to put in the subway right of, right of way. 40 years later, it was decided to take a subway along Bloor Street in the Danforth using that right of way and think of how many millions of dollars and how much time it saved the city of Toronto because that engineer advocated and, and built up a coalition in support to spend the money back. And the, the, the approval probably came at about 1915 or so during the war, maybe or maybe at latest at the end of the war, because that's the period in which it was built, to, to spend the extra money to future-proof that bridge. So, so I would ask any consultant in any field, and certainly most especially somebody doing change management, to do everything that they can to future-proof their work. I like that concept. Very forward thinking, obviously. You, you got it. How, how, how do you sleep nights if, you, if you're doing mm -hmm. something that's going to be useless within a year? <laughs> so, Rick, unfortunately, we're close to running out of time. Um, I'm, I think we have more material that we could do in a part two, if you were willing. But if... Uh, happy to do a part two down the road, sure. If, uh, if people wanted to get hold of you and find out about what you might be able to do for their organization... How do they go about finding you? Uh, my contact information is at LinkedIn. Okay. Simple enough. Yeah. So, so I'm I'm I'm, I'm Rick Wolf. Um, I'm I'm, I'm a, a Toronto a, a consultant, and and I, and as far as I know, I'm the only Rick Wolf Toronto-based consultant on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Do you get uh, confused with other with Rick Wolves uh, worldwide? There are one or two out there, to my knowledge, I have never, on LinkedIn, but to my knowledge, I've never been confused with one of them. Okay. Well, Rick, thank you so much. I found this fascinating. I hope the audience has as well. And thank uh, you, Fred. Thank it's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you to all of you who've tuned in to the Dead Man Walking podcast. Please uh, like it, subscribe, look up Rick, send some business his way. He'll treat you well. He'll look out for your future. And uh, I wish you all a wonderful week. Thanks so much for tuning in.